Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome into the show. We have an exciting episode today because we are technically in 1 Corinthians still, which we've been since last year, technically. It's a dad joke. But uh, we have a guest today. So Rob, introduce uh, who we have on today. Uh, We're really excited and privileged to have uh, Dr. Russell Jung, the professor of Asian American studies at San Francisco State University. Dr. Jung was named one of Time's most uh, 100 most influential persons in the year 2021. Uh, He received a BA in human biology and MA in education from Stanford, earned his PhD in sociology from the University of California in Berkeley. He's written a number of books, including Family Sacrifices, The Worldviews and Ethics of Chinese Americans, Moving Movers, Student Activism and the Emergence of the Asian American Studies, and a number of other books as well. His research interests include sociology of race, the sociology of religion, and the sociology and and social movements. Dr. Jung is extensively engaged with his students in conducting community-based participatory research within Asian American communities. And in 2020, in March of 2020, right around the time of uh, COVID uh, really kind of taken full bore, uh, Dr. Jung co-founded Stop AAPI Hate, a coalition that was awarded the 2021 Webby Award for Social Movement of the Year. So uh, thank you so much, Russell, for being with us. We just appreciate having you here today. Glad to be here, Rob. Good to meet you, Vinny. You too. Very good. So uh, Russell, let's just start by kind of giving us a little bit of an understanding of the work that you do with Asian Americans and some insights into um, Asian American community here in the United States. Sure. I'm a professor of Asian American studies, and so... As a sociologist, I look at a lot at contemporary issues facing our communities as immigrants, as a racial minority group, as a community seeking integration into the broader society. So that's my research. I look at both the impacts of race and religion in the community's integration. But most recently, you know, because of COVID-19 and the pandemic, Asians have seen a surge of racism against us. And it's just been really traumatizing and difficult. It's been a real dark time. And so I helped co-found Stop AAPI Hate, a coalition to address the racism and to track what's happening. Interesting. Was was that, was founding that Stop AAPI Hate, was that something that was in your mind prior to COVID and everything happened there? Or was that in response mainly to COVID? It was all a response to COVID. So I know Asian American history and in the past, whenever diseases came from Asia, Asians were blamed, they faced scapegoating, Mm. and they faced racist violence because of the disease, and they faced racist policies. Uh, It happened um, as recently as SARS in 2003. So watching was the danger of COVID. I really paid attention to the the news accounts of racism against Asians, and there was a clear uptick. And so we actually contacted um, government officials warning them about the racism, said, you got to pay attention, you got to track it. And when the government said they didn't have the capacity, we created mm. our own website and we okay. were immediately flooded with hundreds of incidents. And to date, you know, one out of five Asian Americans have experienced anti-AAPI hate um, in the last year. So that's mm. 4 million cases of hate. And wow. it's not minor microaggression, but they're traumatizing cases. So one out of five of us who experience this racism face diagnosable signs of trauma. Wow. That's three or more long-term symptoms of issues like anger, anxiety, hypervigilance, depression. So I'm actually calling this a period of collective racial trauma. Wow. It's akin to Japanese American incarceration. Um, not that it's the same mm-hmm. situation, but the emotional impact, the intergenerational impact. Um, is the same. You know, and this is Lunar New Year. And just recently, we had mass shootings in Monterey Park and Half Moon Bay. Mm-hmm. So violence from outside the community, violence within the community has really, really been a traumatizing time for all of us. And, you know, I was actually thinking so- about that in preparing for this, because you have, I mean, early reports, and they haven't done investigations, but it looks like you know, you say within the community, it looks like it, it might've been older Asian men who are responsible for that. I mean, that's just got to cut. Uh, gosh, I, I'm thinking if, if I was in the position of being in the Asian community, it's one thing to have 
hate from outside. But then when you have people from your own community snapping and saying like, ah, oh, something's not right. Um, I don't know, how, how, how does, what is it like to internalize that or just to process through that? This is only a few days old, so I don't even know how people have processed through that yet. Yeah, I'm still processing mm. through it. And, you know, when I, I heard the names of the individuals who were killed, um, it began to hit me even more knowing that these are real victims with families. Um, when we're hit by hate crimes, it's, it's actually more insidious because um, the hate um, can target any one of us, right? And so mm -hmm. um, we know that they weren't targeting those individuals, but they were just targeting our racial community. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually more frightening. And that's why you have a higher punishment for hate crimes, because it's a larger um, sin against the community. It's a larger um, offense. But when the violence comes from within the community, um, it's tragic as well, because mm -hmm. we think, what could we have done to support the perpetrators, right? Mm -hmm. What caused them to be so isolated, to be so angry, to be so damaged that they would want to harm those closest to them? I just want to point out something, because you said something that was very, it was huge, it countercultural. You said, what could we have done to support the perpetrator? Mm. When oftentimes we think in terms of accountability, which is true, we do need to have accountability. But the preventative aspect of that to say, like, what are we looking at with the people in our own communities, whatever mm -hmm. community it is, that's just a different mindset that we don't in American society, we don't think that way, because everything is about the libertarianism about you doing something and then having a reaction for it. We don't think preventively. Yeah, I think if you take an Asian American collective mindset, you both think about prevention and how can we have community mm -hmm. mental health, how we could support each other as a group as a, a community that's interconnected. And I think I also think about restorative justice in mm. terms of racism, that I know a lot of Asian American religious leaders who've been subject to racism, but they empathize with the perpetrators. They recognize that um, their perpetrators have been subject to white supremacy and don't know anything else. And so they too want to educate and restore their perpetrators. So I think Having this collective Asian American perspective lends itself to both a preventative and a restorative model of justice rather than a punitive one. Mm -hmm. Now, you talked, I mentioned before that some of the history of Asian hate crimes in the United States. And I don't think most Americans in my, obviously I'm white, so in my, my sphere, and I grew up in the public school systems, Cal State Hayward, a California state school. I don't think most of us know the history of Asian hate crimes. You mentioned the Japanese incarcerations, and we're going to have an interview. We have an interview with a woman who actually, as a six-year-old girl, was incarcerated and moved to Texas. And so we're going to interview her. So can you help us understand a little bit more of that history as well as that particular thing so that when we do air that episode, people have more of a context for her, her testimony? Sure. You know, um, they say indigenous people have the historical theme of genocide. Mm. And African-Americans have faced, you know, slavery and segregation. I think what encapsulates Asian-American history is one of violent exclusion. Mm. Now, throughout our history, not only Chinese, but subsequent Asian ethnic groups have faced exclusionary policies, institutionalized racism that discriminated against us, and also de facto exclusionary practices mm -hmm that have locked us out of American society. So I could quickly give you some examples. Please. please. Um, you know, I'm, I'm fifth generation. So my family mm -hmm. has gone through each of these sort of policies. Mm. You know, in 1882, Congress passed the um, Chinese Exclusion Act, right? It's right. the first piece of legislation to bar an entire ethnic group. It mm -hmm. actually defined America, that America should be a white and maybe African-American nation and not an Asian one. But that policy didn't actually quell violence against Asians. There was a lot of anti-Asian hate at that time because of white labor complaining about um, Chinese competition for jobs. And so um, in 1885, just a few years, there were over 168 purges of Chinese settlements along mm -hmm. the West Coast. These weren't just individual lynchings. These were entire communities forcibly driven out by mob violence. Mm 
Mm. These communities just disappeared and you really hear, rarely hear of any stories about them. Right. Um, is through arson, threat, um, murder. And so um, that's just one example. Moving forward, when the bubonic plague came, um, Chinese were blamed for it and policies were to segregate the Chinese and then to burn down Chinatowns. So mm. um, Honolulu and Santa Ana were actually burned down. Mm. Um, other groups like uh, Filipinos faced mob violence in Watsonville for um, socializing with white women. South Asians in Washington state were driven out um, because they were seen as not the yellow peril, but the dusky peril. So time and time again, um, people seek to expel us, expunge hmm. us from their community. And that continues today, even with um, how South Asians face Islamophobia, and um, have been rounded up by um, the Department of Justice and how Southeast Asians are deported in really high numbers um, for um, felonies that they have already paid their crimes, their punishment for. Mm -hmm. So this, this cycle of um, being seen as a yellow peril, as a dusky peril, of being excluded um, by policies, of being threatened by violence um, has continued to this day. Can you explain what you mean by dusky peril? I was just going to ask that. Oh. <laughs> I got the, I got the, the first. Yellow yeah. peril <laughs> is the fear of East Asians coming to invade. Okay. The dusky peril is um, the parallel fear of South Asians coming in. Interesting. Um, taking over white workers' jobs. And, and so how do you define South Asian? Sorry, I'm so ignorant. But yeah, yeah. I, I think... yeah from India, from okay, Pakistan. Okay. okay. Very interesting. Now, uh, can you talk a little bit about the Japanese incarceration during World War II and what happened there? Yeah, that's another example of the yellow peril and policies that seek to exclude Asians. You know, after world, after the bombing of um, Pearl Harbor, Japanese who are American citizens were rounded mm -hmm. up and put into concentration camps. Um, mm -hmm. Over 110,000 of them um, during the war, um, deprived of their constitutional rights, um, losing their property, their work. It was just a travesty, but again, the government justified its policy saying that the Japanese were enemy aliens who are not to be trusted. So again, the perspective that Asians are outsiders, threats, even just aliens ineligible for citizenship have continued to sort of frame how Asians are treated in the United States. You know, at some times we were seen as the model minority who'd been accepted, but you could see in the current period with COVID, we're again seen as the yellow peril, disease-ridden bodies to be excluded. Mm. Now, how much has the rise of China and the power that China has, the powerful empire, if I can say it that way, that China is becoming in the modern world, has that intensified problems here in the United States? Yeah, it, it does. Okay. So I think the two... The two sources of the racism are, first of all, we're seen as perpetual foreigners to be excluded. Mm. But the second is the threat of China um, to the United States and to the mm. West. Politicians say China is an existential threat to the United States mm. and making it the largest economic competitor, political enemy and because it's communist, because of trade wars and because of again, just being a different racial group, mm -hmm. makes China an, an easy target, an easy enemy. And so when America bashes China, mm -hmm. Chinese in the U.S. also get bashed. Right. And it's one of those things, if our government is doing it, then it's almost providing a justification and a grounds for us doing it. Right. It sanctions. It sanctions it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. like, like the 1882 Exclusion Act. It's like, of course, it's going to intensify hate against the Chinese who are already here because, or Asians who are already here because it basically says one is inferior. Right. And not only inferior, but uh, a threat mm. to be excluded. Again, you know, I, I don't think when Russia invaded Ukraine, mm -hmm. Russians in the United States faced such hostility. Mm -hmm. But um, we Asians in America get lumped in with Asia. Mm -hmm. And um, right, not right. again as Americans because we're non-white. 
and therefore more subject to, to racism and hostility. Let me yeah. ask you a question then. And I'm just thinking this is bringing it down to the most practical of levels. And so I'm speaking to, you know, assuming our audience is going to be mainly evangelical, probably, you know, probably white evangelical, uh, maybe more conservative leaning in terms of what they intake in their politics, just because that's what you tend to get <laughs> in evangelical circles. How can we learn, I'm asking even for myself as a white guy, how can we learn how to better talk about these topics where you could look at what the, the communist Chinese government is doing? There's a number of evil things you could attribute to what they do, what you, what you saw them do with the Weber people. Like there's things that you could just say, this is objectively wrong, right? What they do against Christians in China. How could we speak um, more appropriately where mm. we're, 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 we could critique the government without using language that might inflame the people? Right. I think, um, as you said, and this is actually what we recommended to Congress and to the, to the White House and to the um, State Department, is that you have to always differentiate between the policies of the communist government from the people, mm -hmm. from the culture, and from the nation. And so we recommended that the State Department always um, be open to criticizing the policies of the PRC, uh, but at the same time, always naming our friendship and love of Chinese people, the mm -hmm. culture, and even um, the Chinese diaspora. So I think that mm -hmm. distinction, I don't know why people conflate all things Chinese together. You know, often something we're, you know, like we're objects, like we're a, mm -hmm. oriental rugs. And we're mm -hmm. like, you know, like we're, but uh, don't we do that with, a, with, with a lot of the issues that have come up in the last eight to 10 years now here in the United States too. And a lot of it is you can't critique the government of the United States without being anti-American. We can't advocate for kneeling down at the flag because what the flag, what, what, what it represents. It's like, there's no nuance no, there. There's no, there's no nuance there. Uh, so there's this holding on to, we, we look at things through this one set of glasses and of course it's going to, I think it's easy for me to understand why people conflate it. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. You're, you're, the, you're a sociologist. So you're much more. <laughs> yeah. So I think, um, yeah, that simple ideological heuristic. Okay. <laughs> All things China are evil, mm -hmm. even untrustworthy, you know, again, the yellow peril stereotype. Mm -hmm. they're just again blanket generalizations and so like what Vinny said is we just need to think differently frame the issues differently and have different language for it so again you, you know like when president trump used words like the chinese virus and kung right. flu it was mm -hmm. totally deadly because it was such a simple heuristic mm -hmm. but it racialized the virus made a biological virus chinese and it stigmatized the people right mm -hmm. chinese were the disease carriers right and so People like these sort of simple mm -hmm. ways of understanding the world. Yep. Um, I, I like how you call it a more likely too, because they like to think in black and white terms. Yes. But... Well, and I like how you describe it as a heuristic because it truly is. <laughs> uh, but give me the example as a white person, you hear one of those phrases and it's like, okay, cute little phrase. That's probably offensive, but that doesn't cut me to the heart. Like mm -hmm. I have to jump into, I have to think about, I have to empathize in order to say, mm -hmm. okay, is that right? What would that do to someone? So there's steps that I have to take and I have to be proactive to go there. Right. And so, and I'm, I'm wondering for you, like, what does that do the first time you started hearing that and, mm -hmm. and your, your community started hearing that? How does that cut you? Like things for like China me, virus or Kung Flu? Yeah, again, it's jarring, stereotypic. As a sociologist, I know it would lead to blaming and scapegoating mm -hmm. because what it does is it creates what we call a racial schema. It, it creates in our minds a framework of how we react to the world quickly. And this is the way our neuropsychology works. And this is the neuropsychology of race. Our brains automatically create in-groups and out-groups to perceive danger, right? And so out-groups are always more dangerous than the in-group. They could bring a disease. They could be at war with your tribe. So you are, are already predisposed to being suspicious of out-groups, however they're defined. When you create a schema, a way of thinking about the outgroup that they're disease carrying, that they're the Chinese virus, right. then you automatically go into a fight or flight response. Mm. It's an automatic response. And that's the way your brain works. You don't stop and think, is this person dangerous? Is this person friendly? When you see a dog growling, you don't stop to think, is this dog dangerous or is it tamed? 
you automatically go into a fight or flight response. And I think that's what's happened during COVID-19. People come across Asians, they, they think Chinese virus, and they automatically think they're disease carrying and they go into fight or flight response. And that's mm. why we're being attacked so often, or that's why we're being shunned so often. Mm. So I would argue this little simple puristic Chinese virus is deadly because it creates an implicit bias. Mm-hmm. It creates the way we automatically respond to certain groups of people. That's how stereotypes um, work. We actually have these visceral responses that are unconscious. And so what we need to do to combat these stereotypes, and even I had that implicit bias, that I thought, you know, Asians wearing a mask were more infectious than non-Asians not wearing mm, masks. Interesting. Mm. Wow. You have to actually do, you actually do have to stop and think, what's the situation here, rather than relying on your automatic judgments. That's the way racism works. We have these implicit biases. We yeah. all do. They've been evolutionarily, you know, built in. And mm-hmm. so we have to actually um, stop and think and be mindful in order to combat them. So what are some issues now? Let's take this conversation to the church as we're kind of wrapping this conversation into our, our conversation on First Corinthians. What are some issues that Asian Americans face or Asian Christians face in Christian churches, I'm, I'm assuming that this spills into the congregations. Mm-hmm. So I think Asian Americans face two stereotypes that they also experience within the church. The first stereotype is what we've been talking about, that we're perpetual foreigners who are like mm. the East is East, the West is West, and are polar opposites. Mm. So we're seen as being really different, exotic and so people sort of treat us as, you know, exotic figures. Like, oh, you speak English so well, mm-hmm. or they're surprised that we fit in. Um, they wonder what we eat. And so we're seen wow. as so different, right? And so that that type of uh, exotification really is sort of... Um, dehumanizing actually because we're seen as the other wow the other extreme is that we're seen as a model minority and we're seen as oh we fit in so well we speak english so well we're so educated we work so hard and so asians who fit in the model minority and oftentimes go to multi-ethnic or white churches they are trying to fit in to cultivate to belong and so um they're seen as so um, acculturated and fitting in so well that they lose actually sadly a lot of their Asianness, right and they can't even acknowledge their Asianness within the setting because you have such a dominant white evangelical subculture you talk a certain way mm-hmm. you read the bible in a certain way you sing certain songs that seek god in a certain way mm-hmm. and so what's problematic about that is adopting a white perspective of christianity sort of you lose the um, diverse ways of understanding God. You lose the bodies, the different parts of the body's ways of believing in and trusting in and following God. And so I have lots of ways that I could talk about how I think Asian Americans, if they had the capacity, if they had the space to develop their own theology, their own um, Christian approaches that are even evangelical, we would really be able to bless the broader church. Interesting, interesting. And imagine that causes a lot of tension when they go back home into their Asian community or their Asian family. If they're becoming yeah. becoming white in the way they worship and everything else, then they and they lose their culture there. Yeah, there's, there's multiple losses when you, um, you're not able to integrate your, your racial and ethnic background with your faith, right? It's sort of like you lose an arm. You can't really fully follow God with your whole heart, mind, and soul if you have to leave out part of your cultural heritage and your racial experiences. This is a random question that I didn't prepare you for. Obviously, I didn't prepare you for a lot of this, and I apologize. But so if you have the answer off the cuff, what percentage of Asians are in Christian churches in in the U.S.? Do you have an idea of that? Yeah. Of the Asian American community, I think about a quarter attend Christian churches. Okay. Or maybe, I think a quarter of Chinese attend Christian churches. Okay. 
And then, uh, you know, Filipinos and Koreans have the highest rate of church going of any ethnic group, higher than whites and blacks. And, so yep. okay. among us, there's really high participating religious groups. And then the other groups like Chinese and Japanese are the most likely to be religious nuns and that we don't affiliate with any religious groups. Okay. All so right. There's a whole spectrum. Right. Um, of those Asian Americans go to church, you we used to think, oh, they usually go to an immigrant ethnic church, mm-hmm. but actually more um, Asian Americans now are going to white and multi-ethnic mm-hmm. churches as well, especially among the second generation. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I ask that because it's interesting is that if you think about the key leaders in Christianity in America, you're going to have a tough time coming up with Asians to populate that list. You, you know what I mean? Yet they yeah. make a significant portion of our churches, mm-hmm. yet proportionately, they don't make up the list of key leading voices. Actually, increase- am I wrong? Yeah, we, oh. we don't make up a large number of the eventual, you know, Asians only make up 6% of okay. the nation's population. But, you know, the president of InterVarsity, the president of Christians for Social Action, the president of um, National Association of Evangelicals. Okay. Um, they're all, you know, presidents of seminaries. They're all Asian Americans. Okay. So, I, think right. recently. so I, I, I have a quick question, actually, because you had mentioned going back to your statement on, uh, you know, Asian folks are good at blending in and just kind of losing their own identity. I, you know, you didn't say it that way, but I'm paraphrasing. I, in in our church, in my church context, uh, we we have a, you know, probably a, if you say six percent. Uh, make up churches we're, we're probably a little stronger than that in, in my congregation mm. uh you know we actually have we host a chinese church that meets here as well on you know they, they speak in they meet in chinese um but we have a lot that are integrated in our con- in our congregation and i remember after this probably the summer 2020 uh, we have a podcast at our church that i host and i had a few of people on a couple staff members and some congregants asian folks and we were talking about this and just kind of processing it and one of the things that came up with them was that part of their culture is to not speak up for yourself. It's to, uh, you know, it, it is to kind of blend in. It's to not almost not advocate for yourself and, and raise a stink. I forget the terms that they would use. I'm using that, that language. Um, but that was becoming a, pro- you know, they were excited by the stop Asian hate movement then because it's like, wow, it, it feels like we're actually having a voice. We're actually mm-hmm. saying something in the public square, but bringing it back to the, to the local church. If I'm a church leader, if I'm a congregant in a local church, and I know that I have uh, Asian Christians in my church. What can I do as as the non-Asian person, white, mm-hmm. black, African, whatever you are? What can I do to help, uh, you know, just to, to to empower, to serve my Asian brothers and sisters, specifically when it comes to this topic? That's an uncomfortable topic as a white evangelical male. We're, we're not good at talking about any of these sort of issues, whether it's with Asians or blacks or whoever. What can I do just to to start the conversation, to help serve my brothers and sisters and ask them what they need when they might not you know, culturally be likely to actually extend themselves? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, there's a book, an Asian American staff written book for InterVarsity called Invitation to Lead. Hmm. And one of the approaches they say of developing Asian American leadership and voices within a congregation is that, again, we're not going to step up and take the lead rather we wait until we're invited to lead Mm -hmm. and so actively inviting asian americans for their insights for their input um, is the first step to really welcome them in right again we're not going to assert our own presence sometimes i mean some others do but you know instead to be invited in is a better way of being inclusive of encouraging belonging and participation. So I think that's the first step is instead of just allowing them to continue to be silent, Mm. ask, do you have any ideas? Do you have any suggestions? You know, that's, that's one thing. And that goes against a lot of American leadership styles, which is like, Hey, you need to, you know, we, we assume you need to step up and lead and we put Mm -hmm. it on the person themselves. And so we need to be culturally sensitive when we have diverse cultures in our congregation to say, no, that's not, that's not going to work with all cultures. Right. Right. Especially, um, some women, especially mm-hmm. some Asian groups. Yep. Yeah. So again, the invitation rather than the waiting around or expecting them to assert themselves like the way white men do, mm-hmm. is, that's just a different communication style. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
Another thing is acknowledging the different contributions of how people can lead. You know, some people could be emotional glue. Some people could be really good administrative support, right? Other people can be supporting the, the facilitator. And so I think there's different ways to lead that. And some are really cultural strengths of Asian Americans. And so leadership looks differently in different ways, but to um, ascribe leadership models as being usually, again, the white male approach of assertiveness, directness, then masks and neglects some of the other leadership styles that um, can bless the church. And that's what First Corinthians 12 talks about, right? right. Is we're all part of the body. We all have gifts to bring. But I think the problem with of the white evangelical church is that it prioritizes a certain style and mm. culture, subculture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, we're, we're so isolated as whites that we don't recognize the cultural differences. We just think there's others' oh, language differences or or whatever else it might be. Excellent. So what are some things that you would have to say to us that you, that things that we should know or mm-hmm. things that you would like to say? I think um, every group brings cultural strengths to yeah, the church yeah. and Excellent. learning from the different cultural strengths and how they can be applied to the faith are really, really helpful. And I can just give one example is that, um, you know how, there's this notion of five love languages that are supposed to be universal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? I think there's lots of other Asian love languages mm, that actually speak truth and help us understand God's love. You know, another Asian love language besides, you know, touch and gifts and service is, is food. We show our love through food. Oh, interesting. And, you know, that's exactly how God loves us by inviting us to the banqueting table. Yeah, true. Providing himself every time we take communion mm. another way that asians show love is through parental sacrifice you know they'll do anything for their kids mm. they immigrate for their kids um, they forestall their own careers so that their kids have better opportunities and so you know this love language of sacrifice the love language of food are actually the two symbols of the church communion mm. and the cross right right so if we understand asian ways of loving and demonstrate Asian ways of loving, maybe we could understand God's way of loving us even more. Interesting. So, you know, our cultural backgrounds provide understandings of love, of God, of the gospel in different ways. You know, even understanding that, here's another one. Sorry, I'm going off, but- Oh, you're good. This is great. (laughs) You know how um, Western theology really focuses on how we've been forgiven of Mm -hmm. our guilt. But the Bible speaks of shame three times more than guilt. Mm. Asian cultures, often being a shame-based culture, we really are affected by shame and live with a lot of shame. Mm. So the gospel message that God looks upon us favorably, that he blesses and honors us, is another way of understanding salvation. It's that freedom from shame, the release from that darkness, Mm. is really, really powerful. And I think for today's younger American generation that's so social media driven, that are so shame-based, they too may be able to be really hear the gospel in different ways if we understand its liberation from shame. So I think those are just a couple of ways that understanding cultural differences could really bless the church. Interesting. Um, understanding Very... racial differences could really bless the church too. Um, right. You know, how Asians are treated as foreigners to be expelled at this time. Mm. I think Jesus is in the midst of the foreigners. In Matthew 25, it mm-hmm. talks about he's with the naked, the hungry, mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. stranger. And we as Christians are supposed to be resident aliens to see ourselves as strangers in this land. So Asians who are already sort of in this liminal stranger position in the United States have a lot to say about what Christians in America should be, how they should be mm. not really buying into the empire, but trying to be undefiled right. by the empire. Yeah, excellent. Well said. Well said. Very good. Well, thank you so much for being <laughs> Sorry, here with us. No, yeah, this, this, is, this is awesome. This is awesome. <laughs> so good. This is excellent stuff. I appreciate it. I appreciate your friendship and the work that you're doing. We'll continue to pray for you 
and for our Asian Asian brothers and sisters um, and people of all all people of color and all mm-hmm. and all reality too that are that are struggling. I was just chuckling to myself as I, I thought about. It. I'm like, wait a minute, you said you're a fifth generation American. I'm a second generation American, and my grandfather was an illegal immigrant. So I, I don't know <laughs> yeah. what that's for me because I shouldn't even be allowed in this country, right? You know, yeah. uh, my, my grandfather stayed here illegally and kind of went across the country. And he said that he was born in 1904 in San Francisco, and his birth records were destroyed in the earthquake. Oh, that's uh, a, yeah. Yeah, when he was actually born in Manchester, England. So, and uh, he changed his name too. He used his mom's maiden name and everything mm-hmm. else. And so it's a long family story. But uh, so, but so I'm only second generation. So. Uh, thanks for letting me in your country, Russell. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. You're, yeah, yeah. You, you you get in the way a lot of Chinese have gotten in through yeah, the yeah. paper name. Interesting. Well, we're going to continue this conversation, Vinny and I. We have a um, interview with an Asian American Christian who's just one of the one of the greatest Christian ladies I've ever met in my life. I, I always joke that when I get to the heaven, when I get to New Jerusalem, I'm going to be like just barely inside the pearly gates. Like, Hey, let me in, let me in. And she's going to be like, so close to the throne of God. I'll, I'll never see her. But like, I used to, I, I used to be her pastor. Right? You know? <laughs> and so we interviewed, we interviewed her. Or I was able to interview her and tell her story a little bit. She was only a six year old girl, but she was incarcerated. Her family was incarcerated um, uh, during the war, world war II. So we'll add that to this uh, episode. We thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, okay. Russell. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Appreciate it. Take care. All right. Bye, Vinny. Bye, Rob. All right. All right. So, Gracie, thank you for so much for being with us today. I'm just so excited to have this conversation with you. Let's just begin, Gracie, kind of with the beginning. Tell us about, you know, where were you born? I was uh, born in Fresno, California. All right. My mom is Chinese and my dad was Japanese. All right. Good. What year were you born in? If I can ask that, because I think it sets the context, right? It, it does. It sets right. the context. Yep. Right. I was born in 1935. Okay. Gracie, one of the reasons why we, we want to talk is you and I chatted one time a couple of years ago about something that happened to you in your childhood. I don't think most Americans know even happened. Mm-hmm. But during World War II, shortly after the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor, the United States government made a decree. And that decree was basically that Japanese Americans, Americans of Japanese descent, even citizens, as you were an American right. citizen, right. were sent to incarceration camps. Right. And that happened to you. And so you were, what, seven years old? I was, let's see, in 1935. Uh, so I was like six when the war started. Okay, 41. Okay. Yeah, 41. And um, we didn't get notice until, I guess it was after Christmas sometime for that to happen in 42 really yeah i really don't remember a lot of it i do remember that we were um taken to we were told to go to fresno fairgrounds Mm. and um so we all gathered there and it just happened that i had the mumps at the time so i even got separated for a day from my parents at the very beginning which was all right i you go where you want, you, you need to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they just, I have read a book uh, from that period that explained um, what was happening. Mm. I don't re- really remember, but okay. they said that they were put in stockyards and stuff like that, where you had to sleep where the horses were kept or something like that. And I thought, wow, you know, mm-hmm. I don't remember that. Okay. Okay. But you were separated from your parents were separated because one was Chinese and one was Japanese, right? Well, no, we went, they went together. Okay. We were uh, eventually sent to uh, Jerome center in Arkansas. Mm. It just happened that even though my rest of his family didn't live in Fresno, we all ended up in the same camp Mm. in Jerome center. And in fact, we were all in practically the same building. We were housed in barracks mm-hmm. and ours was a one room room that was about like uh, maybe the size of my living room. Right. Mm-hmm. And I had, um, we had a double bed and a, a cot. And I think my mom had made some shelves and hangers. But there wasn't much there, you know, so. Now, did you have siblings? I am an only child. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. And uh, 
What do you remember the most about the camp, about life in the camp? Well, I thought it was pretty good. You know? <laughs> okay. I mean, <laughs> Other than the fact that your government has sent you away because you didn't. Yeah, you're I so have. Young, you you know, I, yeah. I have no idea of what's happening right. actually. Yeah. Um, but I got to play with all these kids. I didn't have a lot of um, kids to play with when we were in Fresno because mm. they were across the street and I wasn't allowed to go across the street. <laughs> so here I had all these kids because there was no fence line or anything and mm. the roads were on, on outside of the block. So I had all these kids and I uh, got to learn the culture. I got to learn more about the Japanese culture. Mm. They had dancing classes and uh, crafts. And so I thought it was great. Uh, <laughs> of course, my mom didn't, but right, right. I under I can understand now as I look back that, you know, she was ch the only Chinese there. So she did not want to be there. Mm. So. Okay. Now, were you a Christian at this point in time? No. Okay. My, no. Okay. And uh, tell me a little bit about your parents before we go any further. Where are they from and, and uh, their story? My mom was born in Fowler, California. Okay. Which is, which is just, you know, just south of Fresno. And my dad was born in Watsonville, California. Mm. So okay. I'm third generation already Californian. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So full U.S. citizens. Um, yes. Yeah, without any question. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What were your experiences after this point in time then? I mean, as you have grown through these years now, have you personally had to face Asian race, Asian hate crimes and things of that nature? Well, I can remember I was, when my mom got me out of camp, she got out, we got out before the end of the war and okay. she took me back to, to Larry. And then we went, I went to live with my uncle in Reedley. And uh, when I went to school there, I happened to be, we happened to be going out for a baseball game and we were choosing up teams. And one of the girls came up to me and said, she doesn't belong here. We mm. don't, we, she needs to be in, she's Japanese. She needs to be in prison. Oh, wow. And then a bunch, bunch of my, what became friends at that time, because I was still new in, in school, came up and said, hey, lay off. This, she's only nine years old. What, what good, you know, what mm. trouble is she going to cause? And they, you know, they just kind of calmed the situation down. And one of those girls um, became my best friend. She is the one that invited me to church mm. and eventually led me to Christ. So. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Tell me about that story. When did you become a Christian? Um, probably shortly after that. The first time I walked into a Sunday school room, they were singing Jesus Loves Me, you mm -hmm. know. And at the time, my parents were going through a divorce. So mm -hmm. I, it was, I had felt really, you know, I'm at fault They're That's why they're getting divorced kind of a thing. Oh know? yeah. And I didn't realize that wasn't the problem at all, but mm -hmm. you know how kids take things right. on, you know? And so, yeah, I shortly after that, but I didn't actually get to, didn't get baptized until uh, I was a teenager. Okay. My mom didn't want me to join the church. Okay. For some did, reason. <laughs> did your mom ever come to faith in Christ as a result yes. of your faith? Oh, yes. wonderful. Yes. That's awesome. That's awesome. Have you shared these stories with your kids and or grandkids and somewhat? Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Um Randy, my second, got me this thing called Storyworth. And hmm. they uh he sends out questions every week about asking you about your history. And so he's thrown some of those questions in there and they then they made a book of it and okay. Gave it to all the kids. Interesting. Now, as you're well aware, obviously racism has been a significant issue in the United States for a number of years, but it's really come to the forefront yeah. mm -hmm. in the last several years because obviously everybody has a camera now. And so now we can record what's probably been happening every day for the last several hundred years. How has your experiences influenced your perspective on what's happening in, in these issues today? Well, I think I forgave 
United States way back when, okay. because I just assumed, you know, they did that because they were afraid and didn't understand and didn't try to um, get to know the culture before they, you know, they just reacted. Right. And so, you know, that's the way most people happen to do. So, you know, I try to be very open about it, uh, you know. I don't always know their situation, how they're coming in and what their background is. Have you found yourself in conversations, though, over the years where people are talking about race issues and you're thinking, I got a little different perspective than you people do? (laughs) Yeah. And they often ask me about that. And they'll ask me and I'll say, hmm, so you think I should have a different perspective? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, And do you think you do? I get, I think so. Yeah. In a way, you know, your background kind of yeah. fades it, into you anyhow. So right. it's kind of your identity. It's who you are. Yeah. yeah. Now, how has that impacted your understanding of Jesus and the scriptures and the biblical story? Well, of course, Jesus welcomed everyone. So, mm-hmm. you know, so should we, we shouldn't have any judgmental, you know, we should find out find out and learn about them first before we hmm. make any rash decisions you know, about what we believe in their, their background to be. Right. Now, how about your mom and how, how much did that experience uh, traumatize her <laughs> and over the years? If you don't mind me, mind me asking. I, I can't even imagine, you know, hmm. I mean, uh, here she was thrown, she married a Japanese, which was not really, kosher at intermarriage was not kosher at that time yeah and now, now you, when you say not coach kosher in your culture or just in the american culture or both all, i think in our cult in in okay. the asian culture okay you know, you, they wanted to keep everybody you know separate hmm. it seemed to me that they didn't really regard the other as as better they're always, they always regarded them as less. The other cultures always, you know, we're mm. better, they're less. And so the we and they kind of thing. And um, I didn't like that because how am I going to choose? <laughs> right. And so, yeah. And so when she got thrown into that, um, being the only Chinese in the Japanese camp, and unfortunately, most of them, did talk Japanese there. So she couldn't even understand them. Even they may not even be talking about her, but you know, how would she know? Yeah. And so, you know, how that, how that works. And so she was not, she did not like it. So, yeah. Mm. I'm I'm imagining though, this is severely disruptive to your life. Yeah. Well, I guess I didn't really, yeah, recognize right. it as such you know, you know when you're growing up you that's maybe how how things are supposed to be you know sometimes you don't realize how upside down your life is but you never returned to the same home that you were in before that and this, no the, yeah yeah and, and as soon as as soon as the war was over she um she got a divorce from my dad oh and, okay and then shortly after that remarried okay so. Was the um, incarceration part of the the disconnect that led to the divorce, or the I, Chinese I'm Japanese sh- dynamics? Because I know there's a lot of conflict with the war with the war itself. I mean, we we talk about the war from an American perspective, but the reality is the Chinese and the Japanese were fighting each other too. So right, Hitler right. was doing what he was doing, but over in the east, uh, another war was happening. I I can't really say, okay. but I would assume that she just didn't want to go back to where she was. When she when she got married and when we were living in Fresno, we were living with three of his brothers. Oh. So she was the only female. She was like, she was 17 when she got had me. Oh wow. And so and then she went into the situation where she was taking care of all these other men, you know, mm. cooking for them and washing their clothes. And so I don't think she wanted to go back to that. She was yeah. not going to go back to that if she had a yeah. Wow. So, wow. So I'm not sure that was the racial thing, but probably yep. didn't help. 
Yeah, well, she probably experienced things I would imagine in the camp as well that just kind of accelerated that. Yeah, that that hate or that that anger. Now, did you remain with your mom after that? After that? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Okay. What about your dad? Did you keep a relationship with him at all? She would not allow him. Oh, interesting. To, yeah, she just told them, "No, you stay away from my daughter. Oh. You're not coming." And uh, I felt really bad about that because yeah. I thought it was my fault then, you know. Right. And then uh, as as I grew older, she, um, I did not, I did not, unfortunately, reach out to them. Mm. You know? Yeah, it's hard. And I, I should have. Yeah. It's I always easy to say that, but it's also very difficult yeah. to do. And yeah, my dad, my dad died when um, Janet was born, I think, um, right about that, right in that same, same month. And I didn't even get to go to the funeral. So hmm. I probably, my name is not very well accepted there because. <laughs> well, hey, thank you for sharing. Is there anything else that you'd like to, to say or? No, I think I think it's just, you know, uh, we all need to learn to live together instead mm-hmm. of pointing out the different. Yeah, but the difference is what makes us special, yeah. special. Yeah. And we need to learn about that, but we need right. not to hold them, hold it against other people. You know, uh, right. we should appreciate. And, um, well, thank you so much for sharing. And obviously, we have a great relationship. I look forward to continue talking with you. And you've been such a support for my wife and me and my, our daughter, Mackenzie. And we thank you so much. Your love uh, really, really got us through a number of years. So mm-hmm. thank you. Thank you so my much. My pleasure. Yeah. You've, been, you've been a really blessing to us too. Oh, so. good. Thank uh, you. Yeah. So. And in fact, I've, I've never, you know, I never stopped to think about it that when I first asked you if you wanted me to be your prayer partner at Heroes' Oriental Lady talking oh. to a white pastor and I, I never even thought about that. But, I didn't think know. about that either. So thank, <laughs> that's good news. I never thought about that either. So, Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.